This is The Guardian. Today, Happy New Year. Here's a guide for what to see and do in 2023. January gets a bad rep. It doesn't have a spring in its step. The promise that a hot girl summer holds. And it arrives when you're perhaps a little sluggish and tired from the decadence of December. But it is the month for feeling inspired and full of resolve to try something new. But where to start? My cultural New Year's resolution is always the same, which is that I like to try and watch every Oscar film, every category, you know? I want to be so emotionally invested by the time it gets to February <laughs> that I've seen every best documentary short. I'm like ready for the Duke out in original score. So that's what I like to do with my January. We asked music and features writer Sam Wolfson, The Guardian's arts editor Alex Needham, and film critic Ellen E. Jones, to give us their guide to all things culture in 2023. Starting with the promises they've made to themselves. Alex, what about you? I think it's the same I always have, which is just to read more books, uh, which is something I always have great intentions with and then never end up doing. This year just gone, I read uh, Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melchor, and it really just about blew my pants off. She's got another book coming out called This Is Not Miami, which is short stories. So I'm going to read more, going to read more of her, I think. Mine is to listen to new albums from beginning to end rather than on shuffle while I'm running, because I really ruined Beyonce's last album for myself like that, and I couldn't participate in any discourse because I had, because <laughs> I wasn't sure which song came before and how it, you know, built built to its crescendo. From the blockbusters to the throwbacks. If you're looking to understand the coming trends of 2023, plus tips on what to see, what to listen to, and where to go to get a cultural fix, we've got you covered. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, our critics on the can't-miss moments of the new year. Ellen, a lot of us have spent way too much time on the sofa this Christmas, just sort of binging telly. And I wonder if you could just give us a reason to get out. What is the first film that you will be heading to a big screen to see this year? Okay, so the first one that's really going to tempt me out is probably going to be The Fablemans. Movies are dreams. That you never forget which is Steven Spielberg's semi-autobiographical coming-of-age drama. It's one of these love letters to cinema, which I find quite annoyingly self-indulgent as a rule. You can't just love something, you also have to take care of it. It's more important than your hobby. Can you stop calling it a hobby? But if anyone can pull it off, it'll be Steven Spielberg, the man who gave us, you know, E.T., and Jaws. Um, And he actually kicks off a year where there's quite a lot of kind of big daddies of cinema coming back. With such a weapon. Um, Chris Nolan's got Oppenheimer coming out, um, which looks less Tennessee and more Dunkirky, which might be a good thing. Um, Martin Scorsese, 
my favourite is back with Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a kind of 1920s crime thriller with Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. So his two favourites involved. When we go into the summer blockbuster season, it's actually looking quite an exciting and interesting blockbuster season this year. There's, you know, you've got the usual guff like Guardians of the Galaxy 3, but there's a Marvel film that I'm looking forward to, which is called The Marvels. And that's going to be directed by Nia DaCosta, who did Candyman, the Candyman reimagining, if you like, in 2021. And she also did some excellent episodes of Top Boy, if that's more your jam. And also Dune Part 2, which I'm calling Star Wars for Sexy People. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. And Alex, what are the shows that we should be booking tickets for in the first part of this year? Okay, well, the big theatre show of the season, I'd say, is Streetcar Named Desire, which is at the Almeida soon. It was put back from December because... um, the actor playing Blanche, Lydia Wilson, she pulled out and now it's Patsy Ferron. But everybody's going to be interested in Paul Mescal, who's in the role which made Marlon Brando a star, Stanley Kowalski. But he doesn't wear a vest. <laughs> he, he doesn't wear a vest in this production. They're all sort of... Um, there's a, the, the press photo has them all in sort of silky shirt and the two women are in silky slip dresses. They look a bit like they're going to go to cream the 90s <laughs> Liverpool nightclub. I think it'll be a good production. I think what it all hangs stands or falls on, though, is actually Paul Mescal, because if he doesn't really pull off the kind of brutish, all-American guy, it's not going to work. So um, the pressure's on him. But, I mean, he was the lead of our film of the year last year after Sun so he's definitely got acting chops there's also uh, well the Lehman trilogy is back in the West End so this debuted in 2018 it's got a new cast now but that tells the story of the Lehman brothers from their kind of arrival into America into them completely sparking the financial crisis so it'll be interesting obviously now we're in another terrible financial crisis to see how that resonates Sam, in the spirit of going out-out, what is happening in live music land? (laughs) Out-out? I don't know. It's a bit of a mixed picture, I think. I think that lockdowns brought a lot of fire to the illegal party scene that maybe hadn't happened for a whole generation. But then in the more club legal scene, things are going in like completely the opposite direction and you're getting way more day parties, way more things finishing by sort of 10pm. And indeed, like Annie Max just launched this new night called Before Midnight. It's a club for people who want to really go raving, but would like to be sort of in bed by one. And it's been very popular. I think a lot of the events have sold out, although to me, it is a bit like, you know, when they invented Cocoa Pops and then they realized that it turned the milk brown and they were like, oh, no, let's make that a selling point rather than because I think actually it's so hard to get a late license. And it's uh, so many clubs are closing. There was that big stat a couple of years ago that half of UK clubs have closed in the past 10 mm. years. But even since the pandemic, another 20 percent have shut. So I think it is quite tough times for the kind of traditional nightclub. Um, Sam, I'm quite, well, am I glad actually? I don't know. Well, I'm intrigued that raving is catering for older people who, I don't know, want to get up to look after the kids the next day. But I did also read about general new trends in music this year, um, specifically something you and I have talked about, old songs, which now represent apparently 70% of the US music market.
We saw that with Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill, hitting number one nearly four decades after its release. And Joey Rafferty's right down the line. I just want to see which is a relatively obscure record from 1978, but has followed me around in every coffee shop, Urban Outfitters party that I've been to. What's been going on? Yeah, the numbers on it are really stark. If you look at the percentage of music that people listen to, that is what is described as catalogue, so more than 18 months old, it's risen by like 20% year on year for the last three or four years. So old music is basically trouncing new music. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Like you say, some of it is to do with big sinks on TV shows and films, things like Kate Bush, that has a huge, huge impact. And I think also there has been a real re-emergence of crate digging culture and things like William on your ball. And, uh, you sound ele- so dismissive saying no, that. No, no, no. Such I derision. Mean, well, <laughs> listen, so each to their We own love own. William on your ball. And I'm fully up for it. But no, there's just been a lot of discovery of um, amazing old records that I guess feel in a kind of age in which everything can be a bit disposable and TikTok-y more authentic and have a kind of greater truth to them. I think we're going to see that more again next year. There's this um, documentary about the American folk singer Judy Sill. Promise me this and only this holy... It's like a level of desperation and vulnerability that totally transcends a lot of the real personal songwriting that was going on at the time. There just wasn't in one. And that is, again, she's, you know, made these incredible records that kind of weren't appreciated in her own time. And I think we'll see, we see that again and again. So, yeah, definitely Jerry Rafferty's right down the line. Seabird by the Alessi brothers. These feel like the big songs of our generation, even though they came out 40, 50 years ago. And I guess the other thing is that it's just been a really difficult time to launch new artists. I mean, I think you would be quite hard pressed to find an artist who started in the last year who has, you know, there's lots who have done quite well, your kind of Pink Pantheresses, etc. But very few who have kind of gone into that difficult to get to stratosphere where you have a global success. Olivia Rodrigo, Lewis Capaldi, they're like a couple of years old now. And it's been really, really hard to get excitement around a new artist. So I think for all those reasons, people are returning to old stuff. And I think that is the kind of final product of the streaming age that like when you have all this library and all this music available to you to want to listen to something new, it just has to reach a much higher bar. It definitely does because I mean, I'm 48 now, but when I was sort of 16 and you'd read about Scott Walker because Bobby Gillespie had said something about it in NME. It was not easy to get the records. You uh-huh. had to probably go to, you might have to go to a record fair, might have to go through a sec, kind of to a secondhand record shop and crate and really, digging, Alex. And literally dig through all the crates. <laughs> and now, you know, every, because everything is freely available, you know, we're, we're sort of in a, there's kind of a flatness, isn't it? We're in a kind of constant now. And to kind of stand up to the greats of the past, it's an extremely tall ask for someone who's just coming out. Well, where does it fit into the big releases this month, Alex? Specifically, I'm speaking to you because I think you've got some some faves coming out in January. 
Well, just to kind of contradict, contradict this completely, I see that Iggy, both Iggy Pop and John Cale have new records out, and I did, I did listen to the Iggy Pop single, which is which is called "Strung Out Johnny," and it's all about someone who's got a terrible heroin problem. God made me a junkie, but Satan told me so. You're strung out, Johnny. There is kind of something quite heroic about Iggy Pop going on stage. Yeah. Takes his shirt off, you know, he's all kind of saggy, and he just like throws himself into it regardless. So In a way, there's something quite kind of radical about that seeing. I mean, that's kind of amazing. I'm, I'm glad that Iggy's still putting it out there. No, well, yeah, in every sense possible. <laughs> and his new album's been done with um, Andrew Watts, sort of big producer who does everyone from Miley Cyrus to Elton John. So it's very kind of clean sounding, but I suppose it's him getting back to first principles. And the other kind of person of that era and of that kind of group of people. John Cale, who's 80 now and has made a record which has got a lot of kind of current people. Wise Blood is on this single. I remember Ian McCulloch always said that Lou Reed, David Bowie and Iggy Pop were the Holy Trinity. So I suppose you've got the surviving member of the Holy Trinity plus someone who was like adjacent, who is John Cale. Ellen, in the spirit of throwbacks and big returns, is there anything similar happening in the film world? Is there anything that we can look forward to in 2023 that feels a bit nostalgic and a bit authentic? Well, there's certainly a lot of comebacks. We talked about Christopher Nolan's new one and, and Martin Scorsese's new one. There's also the first Indiana Jones film for about 15 years. Those days have come and gone. Perhaps, perhaps not. With Harrison Ford still in it, he's he's turned eighty last year. Oh my so god! Will he still be doing his own stunts? We don't know. Although I did speak to Toby Jones recently, who's also in Indiana Jones Five, and he told me that he'd been doing his own stunts. So there's certainly a chance. I think Harrison Ford could pull it off. Let's hold out hope. Who is this man? I'm her godfather. Related. Get back. There's also like sort of slightly younger comebacks, but the, the Ari Aster, who's this incredible horror director, who made Midsummer. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. He's coming back with his first film, which apparently is definitely not a horror film. It's called Bo is Afraid, and it stars Joaquin Phoenix um, and Greta Gerwig, the director of Little Women and Lady Bird, has got her her, her Barbie movie coming out. Since the beginning of time. Since the first little girl ever existed, there have been dolls. So this is very highly anticipated, especially in the same year as Legally Blonde 3, which has the benefit of having Jennifer Coolidge in it, who everyone loves from White Lotus. But um, yeah, there's definitely there's a kind of mini trend of um, white feminism exploring itself, shall we say. And what about award ceremonies? I know they're seemingly always in this battle to stay relevant. How do you think they can do that this year? There's a lot of pressure, I think, in the industry and in Hollywood generally to return to the status quo um, and to keep on awarding the people that have been awarded many times and celebrated many times. So, And then 
concurrently with that, Golden Globes has really disappointed everyone this year by having another kind of quite whitewashed, shall we say, nominations list after last year that the the award ceremony wasn't televised, the sort of penance for them being notoriously undiverse and also just having some kind of weird corruption scandal. They're the but, FIFA um, of entertainment. Yeah, basically. exactly. <laughs> They're the FIFA of entertainment. So everyone's kind of done with the Golden Globes now. So there's a lot of, a lot of weight riding on the Oscars to um, pull it out of the bag and show that there's genuinely something going on in Hollywood that they're actually taking notice of the things people have been saying for about 10, 20 years. So we'll be able to tell whether things have changed or not, depending on what wins the big awards, I think. If something's changed, we'll see something like Till winning some awards. The lynching of my son has shown me that what happens to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of us all. Till is this movie about Emmett Till uh, made by a woman called Shinoya Chukwu. Um, and it's an incredible film. It's got an incredible central performance from Danielle Deadweiler, who was um, snubbed at the Golden Globes, but should should very much be nominated, I think. Or Tar, which has got Kate Blanchett just being fabulously Kate Blanchett and just absolutely incredible central performance. Um, or something even like Everything Everywhere All at Once or RRR, which are two kind of movies that are sort of Marvel adjacent. They're action movies, they're, you know, multiverse and sort of are on the boundary between superhero and, and reality. If something like that won, then this would be a big sign that Hollywood is kind of being more outward-looking and less self-congratulatory. Alex, what blockbuster art moments will be getting you off the sofa this year? I'm really looking forward to Alice Neal at the Barbican. So Alice Neal was an American portraitist. Uh, she was born in 1900 and died in 1984. And she sort of lived in a very kind of lefty milieu, pretty poor, obviously being a woman artist at that time was tough. And probably that as, that as well as her political views kind of pushed her to the margins of society but she sort of painted everyone around her so activists you know general sort of eccentrics she did a lot of pictures of women like pregnant women which wasn't really a subject that was painted particularly by women and she painted a lot of nudes that were very different to the way that um, art history had previously treated the nude you know because she was a, a woman so when she was getting older she painted the way that her body had changed And it made her kind of pretty aligned with the feminist movement. This is the first big show of her work that's been in the UK. It's like over 70 works. Um, So I think it'll be really great. It's it's sort of accessible. I think it'll get a lot of people into galleries who wouldn't have gone anyway. And then up in Manchester, the massive thing is the opening of the factory, which is being touted as the kind of the biggest cultural institution since Tate Modern. So it's cost 189 million quid, twice over budget, I think, and four years late in the way that these projects tend to be. The architect is the brilliantly named Ellen Van Loon. And That's it's my go- pseudonym. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's going to open with a, with a bang. I mean, there's this dance performance based on The Matrix, which is being directed by Danny Boyle and designed by Ez Devlin. So that should be quite exciting. And then the, and then they're opening the actual factory with the Manchester International Festival. And it's going to be all Yayoi Kusama's inflatables, which I don't think I've seen before. But some of them are 10 metres tall. 
And then much later, like in November, there's going to be the kind of official opening of this building. And obviously it's exciting that a big kind of cultural space is opening somewhere that isn't London, you know, it'll, and it'll be interesting to see what it does for the, for the city's cultural scene. Um, and you mentioned Yayo Kusama, who arguably is the queen of that sort of immersive art experience. And that is also generally a trend that I feel we'll be seeing much more of in 2023. I mean, last year you couldn't escape for immersive experiences. There was telly shows like Squid Game and Stranger Things. And you've got, you know, Punch Drunk still doing their thing out in Woolwich. I think it's called The Burnt City. There's also an immersive guys and dolls happening this year at the bridge. David Hockney is putting his paintings up in an immersive experience. Alex, has this trend not peaked yet? And what does it say that we're so obsessed with being immersed in the culture that we go and see? I mean, in a way, it's partly like what Sam was saying about going to gigs. You know, people want something that's a real experience. You know, money's short and a lot of people want to consume culture much like you would a fairground ride. I mean, it's still it's still quite a recent thing, I'd say, the immersive theatre thing. It's probably only happened over the past 20 years that, you know, you've had Punch Drunk and then all the kind of imitators. But I think the thing that probably changed it was the Van Gogh experience, which came to London and really drew the crowds. And then I think people realised, yes, this is a, this is a new way of being able to show people art without actually having to move incredibly expensive paintings around so this David Hockney thing will be interesting because it's you know the people working on it are pretty credible I think I think Nick Heitner is involved who used to be the boss of the National Theatre you know and I think this building has been purpose built for it as well I mean it's running a few months and then there'll be another immersive shows I mean you could be sort of snobby about it and say you know it's not the same as going to Tate modern or whatever but I guess that's exactly the point and I think if it gets people into art you know particularly younger people who wouldn't otherwise have gone to a gallery then I think you have to see it as a as a good thing really. And, and just to sound an even more, a more cynical note of caution I, I think reading a good <laughs> novel is immersive right going to the cinema was always immersive we don't need you know 3D and like 4D even glasses. Here like, she comes if, voice if of reason. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's if it's good enough, a lot, most of these art forms are supposed to be immersive. There is we do have a problem with not leaving our mobile phones in the other room, maybe, and that's mm. kind of distracting us. And I think there's probably going to be in the coming year like more of a market for attention span training type art. So I don't think it's a coincidence that this four hour film, John Dillman's just topped a recent poll of the greatest films of ever time, the Chantal Ackerman film, which is, includes scenes of a woman washing up in real time. If you went to see that in the cinema and you could only see it in the cinema, you couldn't watch it at home because you'd be on your mobile phone just before yeah, you even knew it. Yeah, all the way it. through. It helps you train your attention in a way that we've kind of lost. And also I think like, the gr real successful British cultural product of the last sort of 30 years has been the festival, right? Which is the number one immersive experience in yeah. which you are seeing culture and music, but also like having a fun time and you're not going on your phone because you've got no signal or you can't mm. quite see it in the <laughs> late night. And I think like that, you know, people are trying to find ways to recreate that on a smaller scale because that has been the thing that has sort of proven most resilient to changing times. Yeah, no, that's true. That's totally true. Coming up, the future of pop music, cocaine bear, an Iranian serial killer, 
and cultural escapism you can get for free. What about the rest of the music industry, Sam? What else, what other challenges does it have in terms of grappling for people's attentions? What's sort of new and how have listening habits changed to reflect that? I think you're going to really see the expansion of what could be defined as music next year. I mean, already. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, one really big trend is sped up songs. I don't know if you know about this, but like... We just called that happy hardcore in my day. Yeah, exactly. It's basically an extremely cheap way of making happy hardcore in which you kind of dispense with the remixer altogether and just speed up songs that are already available. So um, on Spotify, you can find playlists of basically all of today's hits, but just sort of 30% faster. And you might say, like, who would want to listen to that? But I was recently at a 10th birthday party where the birthday girl (laughs) had herself selected the music and every single song was a sped up version of a song. You know, you would hear Take On Me, but sped up. And you would hear Olivia Rodrigo, but sped up. So I think that things like that are going to be quite big. And this has been a sort of 20 year process, this kind of move from genre to mood. But you are now seeing artists who are kind of born in that time making music specifically for a certain purpose. Having said all that, I think there is a lot of exciting things going on. I think there's going to be an incredible year for what I'm loath to sort of call Afrobeats, which I think has become slightly an ugly term like world music before it. And then there's also this strange relationship with TikTok and the music industry that, you know, they're both kind of dancing around each other. And I I don't think either of them have quite worked out how to make a sort of sustainable pop star from TikTok. Um, You know, I know A&Rs who used to be going to watch bands in pubs 10 years ago who are now kind of flying around the world to like find a 14 year old in Argentina who made a funny sound with his mouth to see if that could be turned into like a pop hit with Jason Derulo you know so it is there there is a lot of experimentation and things are kind of coming through that I think that there is a lot of like just stuff that would probably make you know an older generation shiver there's this group called Piri and Tommy here in my soft spot. who are on like all the tipped lists for next year. I saw them at Glastonbury. She was wearing kind of two pair, like a pair of Air Max 90s as a top. And he was like <laughs> wearing a polo shirt, playing guitar, saying, who loves drum and bass? And <laughs> they're making like sort of music that they that they kind of think is like going back to the old days of Garage, but the kind of Garage that they're referencing is sort of five years old. So I just think like everything is in a huge, huge state of flux and pop is going to be really, really exploded, I think, next year in a way that it kind of hasn't been for a long time. There's going to be a big change in what we think of as music. 
fingers crossed. It sounds great. I mean, what I'm taking away from that is Nike Air Maxes as a bra top. Alex is going to be listening to John Cale sped up. <laughs> and uh, Ellen's, Ellen's going to be all over TikTok. Yeah, 4.33 um, is going to be 3.10. <laughs> Ellen, can we talk about, we've, we've done some weird music. Can we talk about weird film? The stuff that's never going to win awards, but that captures your heart, captures your eye and becomes a cult classic. What have you got your eye on? What are the releases that we could look forward to in that vein? Well, I'm I'm always a fan of a Ron Seal movie that does what it says on the tin. The classic being Snakes on a Plane, which was about some snakes on a plane. <laughs> and this year we've got... A bear did cocaine! There was a bear! A cocaine bear, which is about a bear who's taken some cocaine. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, uh, tell us more. Always tell us what more. What more do you need to know, really, Nasheen? <laughs> I think it's all right there for you in the title. It's clearly going to be a pleasurable entertainment, immersive experience. <laughs> Apex Predator. <laughs> High on cocaine. <laughs> Out of his mind. That's one to watch out for. Um, there's also, more seriously, there's a film that I saw at the London Film Festival that I just want more people to know about. Because if I tell you that I saw an Iranian serial killer film, either you're going to say that's the film for me or I never want to see that. But it's called Holy Spider. It's directed by a guy called Ali Abbasi, whose last film was about trolls making love in the forest. If you're really interested in the intersection between male power and media and feminism, this film, which is based on a real case and, and how it was investigated and how people were and weren't brought to justice, is the one to watch. Holy Spider by Ali Abassi. When we did this episode last year, there was still so much uncertainty about what shows might still go ahead and you know what we could actually even do with the threat of lockdowns. But we do now seem to be in this post-pandemic recovery era. And there are, as we've said, all these manner of comebacks slated for 2023. For each of you... Which are you most excited by? I'm going to break the rules and say two. I mean, I think people often predict that Frank Ocean and Rihanna are going to come back next year (gasps) and then they never do. (laughs) But I think there is some certainty that both will at least do something this year because Frank Ocean is headlining Coachella and Rihanna is playing the Super Bowl and, you know, I don't think they're going to miss opportunities to release some new music or something to go along with that. So I think within the first two months of the year, there could be some exciting releases. Please, Rihanna, don't make it another ballad. (laughs) I know, but I feel like maybe she's just getting out her system. That's what I've told myself. Fingers crossed. Alex, Ellen, Sam, it is still pretty miserable outside. A lot of people are feeling the pinch. Budgets are tighter. Everything just does feel very expensive. So can you give us your top tip for something you'll be checking out this year that is free or cheap and will just definitely cheer you up? Well, I'm going to say... I'm going to say this guy, Jenkin Van Zyl, who's... uh, So he's a sort of club kid stroke drag act, stroke performance artist and filmmaker. I guess my kind of everyday look is this like highly theatrical sort of like ballet russe dancer that's been dragged through the the medieval hellmouth. But he just wears the most astonishing drag I've ever seen. So he puts on these prosthetic horns, then he puts on this pointy nose, then he puts on pointy ears. 
does this incredibly bizarre makeup, like puts red contact lenses in his eyes, pearls all over his face. So first off, I'm going to clean the area around my forehead and then I'm going to apply the silicone horns. And then he puts on this kind of Michelin man style outfit but even kind of wilder than that and then there's a picture of him sort of walking down the street going into a shopping center and like eating an ice cream sunday it's traffic stopping isn't in it but he's got a show at um a gallery in london edel asante and the great thing about a commercial gallery is that they're always free so uh, apparently you go into this show and it's like a rat's mouth and then you go into the entrails of the rat and then there's a love hotel I mean, if all that doesn't cheer you up, then what can I, what can I say? You're not in the wrong love hotel. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. Count me in. He had me at pearls on his face. <laughs> Ellen, what, what's your tip? Uh, so I know a lot of people are giving up their streaming subscriptions at the moment. And, and I want, just want to say to those people, even if you do have to do that, there's a load of great TV on Terrestrial coming up. There's Happy Valley, the new and final series of which might be the greatest British TV series of recent years by Sally Wainwright, The Absolute Dawn. And there's a new series of Unforgotten. So these are all crime drama based because that's what I like. <laughs> so apologies if that actually makes you really miserable. Also, this is a tip I always give everybody. Um, if you're at a loose end, Google Storyville on iPlayer and you can see all these incredible documentaries for free. There's hundreds of them. They're all incredible. They will open up your mind and allow you to travel around the world and through space and time. Um, and you'll probably feel better about your own life by comparison because there's a lot of misery there. <laughs> Finally, Sam, cheer us up. Well, I was going to say something similar, which is that one of the big things that's going to happen next year is the three big British public service broadcasters, BBC, ITV and Channel 4, are all going to try and turn their catch up streaming services into like competitors to Netflix. So ITV have launched that thing, ITVX, and Channel 4 are going to just rebrand whatever thing they're calling it currently as just Channel 4. And actually one of the big ways that they're going to try and do this is with film. And I think people don't realize that you don't have to pay loads of money for a streaming service to watch it. There's so many good films on the film section of BBC iPlayer. And I just think that's such a nice thing to do. And they're just, they're in really good quality. You know, you can get them in proper HD. And it, if you're at a loose end, skip, you know, your episode of The Traitors and just see what's in the film zone. Ellen, what do you hope to see more of in 2023? Okay, this is a bit of a worthy answer, but I'm going to give it anyway. I've just finished writing a book that's kind of about racism on, and, and race on TV and film. And I would genuinely like to see more proper diversity on TV and film, by which I mean not just surface level diversity, but like really different kinds of people telling their own stories in their own way. I mean, I, I suppose kind of on a slightly related note, one of the really nice things that happened last year was a lot of older black, usually female artists who'd been scratching away in obscurity for decades on end with no one really caring and then suddenly becoming celebrated. So Sonia Boyce won the Golden Lion at Venice for her pavilion and that show is coming to the Turner Contemporary at Margate this year so everyone who didn't get to Venice, i.e. most of us, can go and see it then. Veronica Ryan won the Turner Prize, you know, she's She's 66. I think it, I just think it's really great that people who've 
kept on trucking in the face of complete public indifference or hostility are now getting their dues. And I hope that it's not just a kind of a flash in the pan. I hope that that marks a genuine shift in our attitudes towards these really great artists. I can't believe that you both gave really meaningful answers about <laughs> cultural <laughs> diversity because what I was just going to say is um, I'd like to see more hits. I think it's been a terrible year for hits. I feel like at all the Christmas parties, people are singing along to songs from three years ago and there's been very few kind of breakthrough mm. bangers. That's true. Um, and so I'm hoping that Max Martin pulls a finger out and we get a few more. Sam, Alex, Ellen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Sam Wolfson, Alex Needham and Ellen E. Jones. Do check out their reviews and features at theguardian.com. The Guardian's culture team have also put together an extensive preview of 2023 and you can find their package of critics' top picks all on our website. Finally, what are the gigs, shows, films, books, art, telly, new releases that you're most looking forward to this year? I'm all ears. Please let me know. Personally, I'm holding out for that new Frank Ocean and I really, really can't wait for the Mike Nelson retrospective at Tate Britain. Tell me what's good on Twitter at Nosheen Iqbal. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and Safi Bujal. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.